0: Okay, this morning we talked about change, and particularly about grief in response to change where we're left with less than we we had before. Um, But I'd like to today, this afternoon, to talk more about positive aspects of change where we can actually work for something that's better than it is right now. Remember King of the response to the Buddha when he asked him that question about the four mountains. What would you do if four mountains were moving in, crushing all living beings? And the king said, what else could be done but dhamma conduct, right conduct, skillful deeds, meritorious deeds? And then again, the Buddha said, well, i tell you, aging, illness, and death are moving in. What are we going to do? They're crushing all living beings in their path. He said, what else can I do but dhamma conduct, right conduct, skillful deeds, meritorious deeds? And this answer that he gives is actually the Buddha's own answer to the question that lies at the beginning of wisdom, which is, what, when I do, would lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? Now, note that question. Because sometimes you hear the Buddhist wisdom believe, begins with a realization that things are inconstant or impermanent. Because they're impermanent, they are suffering. And because of suffering, they're not self. But that's not how the Buddhist wisdom begins. Wisdom begins when you focus on your actions and your desire for happiness. There was a scholar I read one time. He was commenting on how the sermon factor in the factors for awakening, which is called analysis of qualities, is defined as seeing what is, paying appropriate attention to what is skillful and what is not skillful. And he said he was surprised to hear that because he thought that what is the wisdom faculty should be seeing things in terms of the three characteristics. But for the Buddha, the search for happiness comes first. This is what his teachings are all about. This is what led him to leave the palace to begin with and to look for something more than what he had.
1: And
0: we'll find out that the three characteristics are what are more appropriately, the three perceptions will play their role in the context as determined by the underlying assumption that the search for happiness is a good thing. This is the reverse sense of what is ordinarily taken as the context. Some people say if you start with the three characteristics, then the search for happiness is limited to being okay with the fact of change. You have to accept that things are impermanent. However, if you start with the search for happiness, and remember the Buddha says it is possible to find a happiness that doesn't change. Then the three perceptions of looking for things as whether they are constant or inconstant, stressful or easeful, self or not self. they find their role in inducing dispassion for things to give a false or only temporary happiness. But when you're looking for something that's gonna be deathless, well, they, it can't be inconstant, and it can't be stressful, and it can't be outside of your control. So remember, it's the search for happiness that comes first, and then other aspects of Buddhist wisdom will then find their role within the context of that search for happiness. Now the search for happiness begins with everybody with the, the desire to escape pain. We got in one of the readings that one of the results of stress. Yeah, okay, we're beginning to get somebody saying that it's difficult to hear me. Is there more? And of course, the wind dies down when I say that. <laughs> okay, Okay. as i was saying, we're going to be talking about the positive side of change this afternoon in other words the ways in which you can use the principle of change to create a better environment for yourself in spite of the fact that the world is like four mountains moving in on you still it is possible through the practice of dhamma conduct right conduct meritorious deeds skillful deeds to create something that those mountains can't crush you know when the talks about skillful deeds, meritorious deeds. are in response to his question that he says lies at the beginning of wisdom, which is, what, when I do it, will lead to long-term welfare and happiness, okay? The context for the teachings, for the con- especially the context of wisdom, and particularly things when we're gonna be talking about the principles of change, i.e., things are inconstant, stressful, not self. Remember, we're looking at that issue in the context of the fact that we are assuming that the search for happiness is a good thing, and it is possible to find a happiness that doesn't change. Now, this is, as I said, this is a reversal of what some people will tell you. You start out with the principle that things are inconstant, stressful, not self. And then you try to find happiness within inconstant things, which means that you have to put up with a lot of change and just learn how to accept that. For the the Buddha, that's not wisdom. Wisdom starts with the realization that it is possible to find a changeless happiness. And what you're going to be using those three perceptions in constant stressful not self to test any happiness that you might come across. And you can ask yourself is this the genuine article? And if it shows any inconstancy or stress, you say no. So we're trying to escape pain. And as well, the reading said, this is the one of the responses to pain, which is it who knows a way or two to stop this pain. And it's asked in bewilderment. Those two qualities. There's a search, the search is driven by bewilderment. We're, you can imagine a, a small child dealing with pain as a, as they're born, as a, they're lying there getting sick when they're when they newborn. They don't have anybody to explain anything to them. All they know is that, that they're in pain, and so they're they're bewildered by it. Why is this happening? And they're looking for help for somebody. This is why we go for our mother, a guy who go for our, anyone who can help us. And we go through life often this way, looking for somebody to help us with the pain that we don't understand. In this case. When we get to this question that's asked in Major 135, the question of what, when I do it, will lead to my long term welfare and happiness. This is when the, the desire to escape pain becomes a beginning, begins to be wise. Up to that point, you, you might ask, you know, is, there, is there some God out there who can make this pain go away for me, or is there somebody else who can make it go away for me? Um, is this inevitable that I simply have to accept it? And the wisdom comes with seeing, okay, no, I, I, it is possible for me to find long term welfare and happiness and I can do it through my actions. So it starts, the wisdom lies, one, in asking the right people, what the Buddha says. He defines as contemplatives or Brahmins, and these are basically people who gain awakening in following his teachings. You ask the right questions based on the right assumptions. One, as I said, the search for happiness can be a good thing if it's done with ju- with, with wisdom, if it's done skillfully. now so this is a judge, value judgment. Sometimes you'll be here you know, don't look for your own happiness. Throw your life to the happiness of others. But the Buddha says if you look for your own happiness in a wise way, it's actually going to be conducive to other people's well-being too. So there's nothing really wrong with your search for happiness. Long-term happiness is possible. It's not the case that every sensation lasts only for a moment and then is gone. There's some pleasures and some happiness that are going to be long-term. And it is better than short-term. But this it's kind of kind of a no-brainer, but for, for many of us when it comes to the issue of happiness, we don't we act as if we don't have any brain. I have a friend who's a novelist. Um, she writes her novel, Set in China. And she's also a professor at the university back east. Every time she publishes a novel, she's invited to the alumni clubs to read passages from the novel. And the last novel she printed, she told me there was there was one passage I told her I liked the passage a lot. She said, Well, that was the passage that she chose to read to these alumni clubs. The novel was about a young woman whose mother died. The father makes a vow that he's not going to remarry. He's going to devote his life to looking after the children. But pretty soon he forgets the vow. He comes home one time for the government business trip and he comes back with a new wife. Well, the new wife is a courtesan, but she's a good woman. She wants to be a good mother to the girl. And so there's one scene in the novel where the two of them are playing chess and the mother is saying to the, the daughter, okay, if you really want to be happy in life, you have to decide there's one thing you want more than anything else, and you're willing to sacrifice everything else for that one thing. Now, the young girl is sort of half listening, half not listening, but she's beginning to notice that her stepmother is a very sloppy chess player, losing pieces all over the board. And so she thinks, oh, my mother doesn't know how to play my chess, and so she starts getting more aggressive. Well, it turns out she's fallen into the trap. The stepmother has been losing pieces strategically to get the girl where she wants her. Of course, the way, that, the way she's playing chess is illustrating the point that she's trying to make. You're willing to sacrifice your pawns and other pieces so that you can win the game. My friend said she read that to two or three alumni clubs, and she had to stop this. Nobody wanted to hear the message. Everyone wants to win at chess and keep all their pieces. Whereas, from the Buddhist point of view, have, you have to decide, okay, you want to devote things, your actions to long-term happiness, which means you're going to have to be willing to sacrifice some short-term happiness. And so as I said, the Buddha's answer answers to this question, what want I do, will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness. The first answer is meritorious action. The meritorious action is, as he said, is another word for finding happiness in a way that is harmless to other beings. And there are basically three types of actions that are engaged. One is generosity, the other is virtue, and the third is developing universal goodwill. Now, with generosity This is not simply a matter of giving things to other people, but it's also giving your time, giving your energy, giving your knowledge, giving your forgiveness, giving the gift of dharma when you can, sharing the dharma when you can. And when King Vasanthi asked the Buddha, where should the gift be given? He said, give where you feel inspired. So in this particular case, the, the whole point of generosity is you begin to realize there are lessons that you can learn about karma through, the act of giving. the first one is that you do have freedom of choice. This is one of the reasons why there are lots of rules for the monks about when, when people come and say, where should I give, I've you know, got this new inheritance or I've got this new this, this, this sum of money, where should I give it? The monks always have to say, give where you feel inspired, where you feel that it would be well used. It's direct, to basically acknowledge and to respect that person's freedom to choose what they want to do with their, their material goods. And it reinforces the lesson. Okay, you do have freedom of choice. You could keep it and use it for yourself. But if you want to give it, give where you feel inspired. But then the king went on to ask, you know, what what kind of giving, giving a gift where will lead to good results? And the king would say, well, that's a different question. The best result you're trying to give to someone who is either free of passion, aversion, and delusion, or someone who's practicing in that direction. You give gifts in a timely way. You give gifts with respect. In other words, your motivation is you feel that this is a good thing to do. You give what is appropriate and then you give a respectful way and you feel that you will gain something from it. That way, the generosity becomes more and more skillful. So you begin to realize that certain gifts give rise to a deeper and longer lasting sense of happiness than others do. That's going to depend on choosing the right recipient, choosing the right gift, having the right attitude, having the right motivation for giving. So you're beginning to learn some lessons about karma simply through the act of practicing generosity. It's the same with virtue. Virtue is basically abstaining from harming others. It starts with the five precepts. No killing, no stealing, no illicit sex, no, no lying, no taking of intoxicants across the board. In other words, you make a promise to yourself that you're not going to engage in these activities in any way at any time. begin to see that your power up, as you begin to create a new environment around you, you find that certain people that you used to have as your drinking buddies, it's, no, it's not fun. They're getting drunk, you're not getting drunk. You begin to realize, I've got to find some new friends. I've got to hang out with different people. Either that, I've got to convert my friends, whichever was more effective. But you begin to see that by taking on these precepts, you're beginning to change the environment in which you're living. You're beginning to see the power of your actions. And then finally, with the development of goodwill for all beings. You do this not because other beings deserve your goodwill, but you do it because you realize, if I'm going to act in a skillful way with others, I have to make sure that I don't have ill will for anybody. Because if I have ill will, then I'm going to be doing unskillful things. So it's for your own protection that you have to extend goodwill to even the most difficult people. You have to remember, as I said earlier this morning, what goodwill means. Those people are gonna be happy based on their own actions. So you're hoping that if they've been acting in an unskillful way, you hope that they can see the, the damage they've been doing, they see the mistakes they've been making, and then be willing and able to change their ways to act in ways that are more skillful. So that's what it means to have goodwill for somebody who's difficult. And so you begin to see that as you develop this attitude in your mind and you begin to act on the goodwill, that it can, the change in your mind is going to make a change in your environment around you. Now, the change may be simply in the circle of your immediate friends or immediate people that you're dealing with, but at least you begin to realize, okay, the environment that I live in, the environment is created by my actions. So, we're learning some important principles about. It. Lessons for your discernment from the practice of meritorious activities. One, as I said, you do have freedom of choice. In the present moment, you can give or not give. You can, you can observe the precepts or not observe the precepts. It's up to you. You are a little while making the choice. But You see the power of your actions. You also gain some practice, especially as you're observing the precepts in developing qualities of mindfulness, alertness, ardency, which are the qualities that come into mindfulness and concentration practice. Mindfulness in terms of the precepts means keeping the precept in mind, not forgetting that you have that precept. Alertness means watching your actions to make sure that you actually are following with the precepts. And ardency is the desire to keep with the precept even when it's difficult. I had an experience when I first began observing the five precepts back as a layperson. I was visiting some of my cousins. This was prior to my going to Thailand. I was planning to ordain. We were staying at a little cottage on the beach and it was near an estuary where my grandfather used to like to go clamming he would go out with when i was a child he would go out and wear his big rubber boots into the big clam rake and get clams and make clam chowder as a child i hated clam chowder <laughs> so that was pretty disgusting but as we're we're sitting on talking that afternoon we said you grandpa used to go down to the estuary and, and hunt for clams let's hunt for clams to make some clam chowder in memory of him so we went out and we started clamming and we didn't have any rakes so we just were going through the sand with our hands And I found a clam under the sand. And I was about to pull it out and show it to the others. And I began to realize, oh my gosh, if I show this clam to my cousins, they're going to kill it. I can't do that. (laughs) It was one of those moments of mindlessness. I forgot my precepts. And so I just put the clam down on the sand. and walked further down through the water and pretended to clam someplace else. And then one of my cousins moved into the spot where I had been, found the clam on top of the sand. And was about to take it and said, And one of the other cousins said, oh no, if the clam is sitting on top of the sand, that means it's dead. You don't want it. So I actually ended up saving the clam's life. But the lesson I learned from that is, okay, if I'm going to keep with the precepts, I've got to be more mindful. I've got to learn how to keep these things in mind all the time and not forget them. So this is precisely the quality that you need to develop for your meditation. You're already developing it in the practice of mindfulness. You're also developing the quality that the Buddha calls heedfulness you begin to realize that if your actions do make a difference, you've got to be very careful about how you act, both in avoiding harm and also learning how to do positive things. That's what generosity basically is, is when you go out of your way to help others. And you find, okay, that you establish relationships with other people based on your generosity. They're much better relationships than they're based on simple. Okay, you give me what I want, I'll give you, the making a trade like that. At the same time, as you're practicing these things, you're developing a healthy sense of self. And this is an important part of the practice. We talked about this a little bit this morning, the negative side of having a, defining yourself as a being based on your attachments. But the question is, how are you going to get beyond that defining yourself as a being? Well, first you'll have to learn to define yourself as a skillful being. One who's thoughtful, one who is concerned about the future, especially what the results of you know what what kind of life you're creating for yourself, what kind of environment you're creating for yourself and for other people through your actions. As the Buddha once said, skillful behavior is rooted in heedfulness. It's not the case that we have a naturally good nature. As as he pointed out many times, the nature of the mind changes very easily. The mind is the most the quickest thing to change there is in no, the world. It can be very good in one moment and the next moment it's and gone off someplace else. So you can't depend on the nature of the mind in and of itself to make you a good person. But if you begin to reflect on the power of your actions, you realize, I've got to be careful about how I act, both in a positive way and also in avoiding negative behavior. And so you're getting more and more practice in the principle of heedfulness as you as you develop these forms of meritorious action. So this is the, the Buddha's beginning answer to that question of what when I do? It would lead to my long-term long term happiness You engage in meritorious action. And as I said, when you ask that question, that the, the search, for, search for happiness becomes wise. The search for happiness becomes noble when you begin to realize, that even with meritorious action, the results are going to be impermanent. I can change my environment for a while, but then the power of the actions, if the results of the actions will eventually wear out. And I'll have to keep on doing more and more and more skillful actions. It's an unending process. And it's very easy, as we see many cases, where people have acted in meritorious ways and they benefit from it, and then they get careless. They start seeing, they're assuming that you know, they're, they're wealthy, they're good-looking, they're powerful, and they start abusing the results of their, their merit. It's almost like samsara is a sick joke. You work really hard to be a good person, you get the rewards of being a good person, and then they spoil you. You say, maybe I better get out of this. That's when you start thinking, wouldn't it be good to find a happiness that doesn't change? This is where the question turns into, you know, why am I subject to aging, illness, and death, looking for happiness in things that are also subject to aging, illness, and death? What if I were to find, try to find something that was not aging, not ill, not subject to illness, not, not subject to death? And that's when the search for happiness becomes a noble search. And as the four noble truths teach us, okay, a search for this kind of happiness. I mean, it is a possibility, it can be done. That's what the third noble truth is all about. That it is possible to find a total end of suffering. Now, the attitude towards change that we take in this context is comes down to three things. One, there is the fact that the mind can be developed. In other words, your mind can be changed. That's a good thing, as the Buddha once said. If it weren't possible for us to abandon unskillful qualities and developed skillful qualities, you wouldn't have bothered to teach. But the fact is that we can develop these things. So the fact that the mind can be developed is an aspect of change, which is a good thing. Or at least we can take advantage of it. The second is the fact is mind is so quick to change direction of it, as I mentioned just now, this is really dangerous. You could be working, working, working on the path and then suddenly something happens and you're off. You have, to be able, you have to be able to monitor yourself and protect yourself so that you don't swerve off in that way. And then there's the third one, the fact that we can look for happiness in things that change. That too is dangerous. Now, as we're practicing, of course, we are developing concentration. We're developing good states of mind through the meditation. These things are changeable. And we're going to have to make use of them. But we, ha- we can't take them as the goal. We have to realize, no matter how good the concentration gets, no matter how good the sense of well-being is, it's not going to be totally satisfactory. It could change on us. So we have to be careful about these three points about change from the point of view of the fourth of, of this search, the noble search. The first point, there's that passage about the luminosity of the mind. You've probably seen this many times before. That The Buddha says the mind is luminous and it's defiled only by defilements to come in. In other words, its nature is not inherently defiled he's also not saying that, that its nature is inherently pure or inherently awakened. He's simply saying he's as bright. Now, the brightness of the mind there means basically the mind can observe itself. And this is where the mind can be developed. If you couldn't observe yourself, then someone else would have to come in and straighten out your mind. But the fact that you can observe the mind and begin to see, okay, if I do this, this, these are going to be the results. When I do that, these will be the results. You can read your own mind that's what it means that the mind is luminous because after all he says because it's because the mind is luminous that we can develop it if the mind if, if you were saying the mind was already pure then there would be no need to develop it but it is luminous in the sense that it can read itself it can look at itself gauge what it's doing see what it's doing and to make up its mind okay if this this is not right i can do i have to be able to do something better it also means that the defilements of the mind, greed, aversion, and delusion, are not a permanent part of the mind. They can be cleansed away. You can still be aware. So that's the first point. The second point comes down to the fact that the mind is so quick to change. We need to develop more and more mindfulness. Now, Again, remember, mindfulness here is not simply being aware of things or accepting things. It means keeping things in mind. So it's your the role of memory on the path. The memory here plays an important role because you learn a lesson and you don't want to forget it. Particularly if you gain something good, you want to be able to protect it. This passage we had on mindfulness as a governing principle. Okay, if something has whatever in terms of good contact that you've already been able to develop, whatever in terms of discernment that you've been able to develop, whatever release that you've been able to develop so far, if you haven't attained it yet, you have to do your best to work to attain it. Once you've attained it, you need to learn how to protect it. Okay, those are the those, those are the two main roles of mindfulness. Is one, realize, okay, if there's some work that needs to be done. I haven't done it yet. I've got to work on it. Keep that in mind. And then once you've developed something good, okay, then you try to maintain it. So you're not just simply watching things arising and passing away. If something is skillful, you try to make it arise and prevent it from passing away. That's the role of mindfulness there. That's what you're trying to develop as you face this issue of change, the fact that the mind is so quick to change direction. As for the fact that the mind, we look for happiness in things that can change. This is where we have to develop our discernment. and This is where the three perceptions come in. I've mentioned several times now that sometimes they're called the three characteristics. The Buddha never used that term. He called them perceptions. You, You apply the perception of inconstancy. You apply the perception of stress. You apply the perception of not-self to things that could be tempting to take as, as your happiness, but you realize it's not the real thing. Now, these perceptions can be, can be related to two things. One is they're derived from that question, what will be to my long-term welfare and happiness? If it's not long-term, if it's, it's inconstant, it's not long-term. If it's stressful, it's not welfare and happiness. And if it's not worthy of being taken as myself, then what? If it's neither, if it's if neither constant or happiness, why bother claiming it to be yours? It's a value judgment that you're making there. then the Buddha not asking you to come to the conclusion there is no self, but simply, is this worth claiming to be me or mine? In the passage from the Ratavala Sutta, where the, the Ratavala is talking to the king, he's asking the king about. Aging, illness, and death. And these relate to inconstancy, stress, not self. The first one, the world is swept away, it does not endure. And the king says, what do you mean by that? And then says, well, when you were young, were you strong? And he says, yes, sometimes I thought I had the strength of two. How about now? Well, now I'm 80 years old, sometimes I mean to put my foot in one place and go someplace else. And, then, and what I think it's one of the nicer lines in the canon So that's Focusing, one, on the the teaching on inconsistency, but also the teaching on aging. So inconsistency relates to aging. Then the next one, the world is about protection. There's no one in charge. And the king says, what do you mean? It's about that protection. I've got my palace. I'm I'm the king. And he says, well, do you have any recurring illnesses? And yes, I have a wind illness, he says, which is where you have sharp pains going through the body. He says, sometimes I'm lying there with the pains going through my body. And my courtiers is standing around, I so said, now he's going to die, now he's going to die. He says, but can you tell your courteous to share the pain out so that you feel less of it? He says, well, no. So, okay, there you have no protection. No matter how you have your armies owned, but they can't protect you from your own illnesses. So the teaching on stress relates to the teaching on illness. And finally, the teaching on that self is related to the teaching on death. He says, the world is without possessions. What do you mean it's without possessions? I like got all this gold and silver. But can you take it with you when you go? Well, no, you have to leave it behind. Death is the main, is the big not-sell teacher. The things that you're holding on to, you or yours, you're going to have to drop. So these three perceptions come from looking at aging, illness, and death, and realizing, okay, I've been looking for happiness in things that like age, grow, Ill, and death. I've been looking for my happiness in myself. They're there to be applied to the things that would you might get passionate for and you say I want to hold on and you've got to develop some dispassion for them so you can get beyond them now as you're practicing these three types of merit they give your happiness to on to that's relatively long term and in the course of doing these things you've tried to apply the three characteristics to things that would pull you away from the practice in other words you apply them selectively when you're practicing concentration you apply the three perceptions to anything that would distract you from your concentration. When you're you're practicing virtue, you you apply them to anything that would make you say, well, this time I'm going to break my precept because I'm afraid I'm going to lose something, maybe lose some wealth, I might lose the respect of my relatives, it might be bad for my health. You have to say, those things are not really that that serious. You're going to be losing them anyhow, but if you lose your virtue and you lose them, then you've lost something that's really going to be your long-term detriment so you're applying them selectively the same thing when you're involved in in practicing the, a full path you apply the three perceptions to things that would pull you away from virtue, concentration and discernment and that's only at the final stage when the path has been fully developed that's when you apply the three perceptions to everything including the insights that you've been developing you put them aside Now the question is, why does even insight has to be put aside? And the answer is because insight itself uses fabrications to arrive at the unfabricated. So you're using perceptions, these perceptions of not-self. These two are things that are part of the five aggregates, they're going to have to be put aside at some point. So discernment is not simply acknowledging the fact of change, it's focusing on understanding cause and effect. This is why when the Buddha gave short analysis of his awakening he would po- focus on principles of cause and effect which was called this that conditionality or dependent core rising? so that those cause the patterns of cause and effect can be manipulated you learn about cause and effect not to say gee isn't that interesting you say okay how, how can i use the principle of cause and effect to advance to advance my, my uh, search for true happiness the john's and thailand like to make an an analogy with making furniture. You have tools with which you make furniture. And as long as you're working on the furniture, piece of furniture, you don't let go of your tools. But when the furniture is done, then you put the tools aside. You're just sitting down in the chair that you made. You're not still carrying your drill and you're not still carrying your saw and hammer. You don't need them anymore at that point. So it's important that we we learn how to use these tools, these perceptions, for their purpose, and apply them at the right time. When the Buddha was giving the teachings, he said only two of his teachings were categorical. In other words, true across the board, useful across the board. Those were the principle that skillful actions should be developed, unskillful actions should be abandoned. That's one. And the other is, affordable truths for their duties. Everything else, he said, each teaching has to find its duty within the right right place and the right time. There's some reasons why people misunderstand and think that the three three characteristics of the Buddha's would also count as categorical teaching. One is, has to do with the teaching on karma. As the Buddha said, if you, if you talk about the three characteristics when you're talking about karma, people say, gee, it's karma is not mine, I don't have to be responsible. And then people can start doing anything. This is not the right time to apply that teaching. Sometimes you hear discernment defined as penetrative knowledge of arising and passing away. Makes no reference to causation, or causal, causal patterns. But you have to remember, when the Buddha talks about penetrative knowledge, it means seeing things in terms of cause and effect, and the good and bad effects that they can have. So if you really have a penetrative knowledge of how things arise and pass away, you begin to realize that okay, this kind of arising is going to be skillful, it's something I should encourage. This kind of arising is unskillful, it's something I should discourage. And then finally here the, the description of the dharma eye that's achieved at awakening uh, the stream entries whatever is subject to origination is all subject to passing away some people say this is kind of a general observation and everything arises and everything passes away but it's, it's that, that it's not saying that one the word origination means something that's caused and it primarily means things that are caused from within the mind and this is what, you're going to, what your primary insight is going to be at the moment of stream is It's exactly how much of your experience does come from actions of the mind as opposed to things that are just happening to you. You begin to realize that the mind itself has been creating all this suffering. It's when it learns how to stop doing that, then there is no more suffering. So it's not just a, an observation about how things arise and pass away. It's an observation. Anything that is created from within the mind is also subject to cessation. And you see that because you've seen something that is not subject to origination, it is not subject to cessation. That's why there's that passage where Sariputta was still a wanderer comes back from the in the Dharma. And Moggallana, his friend, sees him, and the first question he has is, uh, Have you seen the deathless? And Sariputta says yes. So it's in seeing the deathless that something that doesn't is not originated and does not subject to cessation. Then you look back at everything else you have experienced prior to that and you realize that was shaped Within the mind. It's not that all it's, it's not just totally made up from the mind, but it was shaped by processes that come from the mind. And because of that, it, when, it, when that passes away, then you have an experience of the deafness. So those are some of the reasons why there may be some misunderstanding about the teachings on the three characteristics. But we have to remember they, they play their real role as tools that you use along the path, and you learn how to use them well while you're practicing virtue, concentration, discernment, or generosity, virtue, and development of goodwill, you use them, to, you apply them to things that would pull you away from the practice, that would discourage you in the practice. You don't apply them to the practice itself. You protect the practice, you work on it. And then when the path has been fully developed, that's when you apply them to everything, to, to, even when you even have to abandon them. And you abandon them, them themselves. And so, this what you're doing here. That's that's the discernment that you apply to this to the processes of change. And we remember that's that's that applies to that third aspect of change, which is that we tend to find we tend to look for happiness and things that are going to disappoint us. This is where we have to use our discernment. The other aspect of change that's dangerous, of course, as I said, is the fact that the mind is so quick to change. We need to develop more and more mindfulness, the ability to keep things in mind, hold them in mind, regardless of. How our emotions come and go, regardless of events that happen, we have to remember what's really important in life is that what we do, what our our own actions are. And this is going to be especially important as you know, life continues to change in ways that we have no way of foreseeing. Then maybe change making will be totally. It is in many ways, it's totally beyond our control. But we have to focus on the areas of our life that are in our control, so that we can work on, as the king said, work on. Skillful actions and Dharma conduct, so that when the mountains move in, it, we have something that's not going to be crushed by the mountains. This combination of mindfulness and discernment that we're going to have to apply. It's interesting that in Thailand, they, they, they tend to put the two words together sati is mindfulness, banyan is discernment. When they put the, terms, the two words together, it means intelligence. Intelligence to keep things, the right things in mind, and to apply them in the right way. So that your search for happiness really is successful that you find something that is really reliable and that's not going to disappoint. And that even even the mountains moving in, no matter who's riding the mountains, you're still going to have something of value that you're going to hold on to. Or something that's even more valuable that you don't have to hold on to. It's there. It doesn't need to be protected. But in the meantime, as long as you're working on the path, hold on to the path. Realize that your true happiness will lie in if that's an attachment, it's a good attachment. It's it's an attachment. To take your cross. Remember the image of the raft going across yeah. the river. When you're, when you're working toward the river across, you get to the other side. We all know that you let go of the raft because you don't need it at that point. But as you're crossing the river, you have to remember one: the raft is made out of twigs, twigs and leaves and branches on this side of the river. In other words, it's made up of the fabrications of the mind. You use your perceptions, you use your thought fabrications, you use your activities, all of which are impermanent things, but you combine them together and you make them into a raft. Hold on to that raft as you cross the river. You have to hold on to the raft and you have to exert yourself. It's only when you get to the other side that you let go. So be very careful that you don't let go of things that are actually going to be to your benefit. There's that great passage where the John Chai says that you're coming back from the market carrying a banana. And someone asks you, why are you carrying the banana? I'm going to eat it. Are you going to eat the, the peel too? No. Then why are you carrying the peel? And then John Chai asks, okay, well, you know, how would you answer them? And he says, the first part of the answer is when you answer them out of desire. You have, to, you have to want to come up with a good answer to have a good answer. So he's pointing out the fact, okay, you have you do have to practice with desire. And then secondly, then you tell, okay, the time has not come. You have to let it go. If I let go of the peel right now, the is gonna be mush, I will be able to eat it. When the time comes to eat it, I can take the peel off and eat it right then. i will be fine. So learn how to let go selectively. Let go, of the, let go of the things that would weigh you down. Hold on to the things that will carry you across. And that way we can deal with change in a way that doesn't destroy us. And the mountains can't crush the good things we've got. So those are the points I wanted to make. Hi, uh, John. Uh, I don't really have a question so much as a statement. Uh, I've been studying your teachings for about seven years now, um, and I just wanted to thank you. Uh, It's made a large uh, impact on my personal life. Um, I had done a lot of different practices uh, before, Encountering the Canon, and your translations and your writings on it. Um, It's very inspirational to me and uh, made a really big difference in my life, so thank you very much.
2: Uh, I have a question uh, concerning free characteristics or free perception. Uh, when it uh, turns into the free, uh, when perce- this free perceptions turns into free characteristics, uh, why is it happened?
0: How that happened? It's really hard to say. I mean, there is one. There is one sutra where the Buddha says, "the you know." This is a truth that is true all the time, whether there are two or not, that all fabrications are are inconstant, all fabrications are stressful, all dhammas are not self.
3: Um,
0: Somehow, however, it came, someplace between the the Abhidhamma and the commentary, it became, they turned into three characteristics. We don't have any record of how that happened.
4: I see.
2: Uh, And uh, the next question, um, second question about uh, nimitta. Um, uh, uh, what, it, what does it mean nimitta? I mean, uh, I, I know that in commentaries and uh, in the suttas it's a little bit different, but uh, could we mm, connect it, it uh, in a proper way? I mean, with a tuning on something, with a, a perception? For example, we see uh, the um, Nice face of a woman, and uh, we uh, tune on only on the teeth, for example, uh, of uh, or some features, or just just body or just face, not pretty face, but but some characteristics. Is, does it uh, uh, have any any connection with tuning? Because uh, it, we we translating uh, um, your your text into Russian language, and sometimes we. <laughs> Yes, 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 it's uh, from us. Sometimes we have some discussions uh, concerning this uh, terminology. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, the problem is the word nimita in Pali has many different meanings depending on context. And it's hard to find one. And English, in English, it's very hard to find one word that will, will, will cover all of them. Um, when it's applied to concentration, I tend to use it in we're translating the suttas, it means the theme of the concentration, in other words, the topic of the concentration. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nimita can also mean like a marker. Like if you're going to set out um, your, the boundaries of a piece of property, and you have to have markers, that the Nimita would be marker there. Um, the, you could say that you know, when you're focusing, say, on, on if you're looking at a woman's face and you're focused on the teeth. Okay, you're focusing on the theme of her teeth, or you're focused on the teeth, the, the teeth as. that's what think as the primary focus, the primary focal point? So I would advise that you come up with a series of different words that you use, and then try to work out which which. Which particular meeting is appropriate for that context. Because working in English, we can't find any one, one word that would apply to all the, all the different meanings.
2: Okay, thank you very much. Uh,
5: last time, Ajahn, uh, we, uh, we were on a Zoom call. Um, one of the participants asked a question about when they're uh, reaching the high, higher level of of concentration and uh, i find it that i become is, is it if i can't really describe whether it, it's fear it's over excitement and it becomes a burden that i just it's it's I'm, i get over excited and then i don't realize what i'm going to to experience or i i really don't know what situation happens or what the feelings are that it uh, then the last thing that I noticed is a bit of fear of of proceeding and, and going to the next level last time um, we were in a zoom call you said that it might be that you think that you're not worthy of 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 getting more calm or or uh, uh, something like that and I try to to focus on that it's I don't think that that is the reason that I'm stopping myself i'm fearful or or whatever it is that i don't want to proceed a little bit more uh could you help me on that please
0: okay it might be wise just to say and instead of trying to move on to the next level say let's really establish stabilize the level where i am over and get so that i feel really really secure where i am and oftentimes it's not the matter of moving from where you are to another spot, it's simply staying where you are and realizing, okay, there's this one little thing that's still burdening my mind and it's totally unnecessary, I can drop it. And that way you can, then that way you you move to the next level without consciously thinking about moving on, I'm simply dropping a burden. Nice. So, so if you think that I'm moving on to some other new that I'm not familiar with, I haven't been there before, it can be a little bit scary. Mm-hmm. but if you realize so here I am but I'm, I'm, I'm weighing myself down unnecessarily with this particular activity or am holding on to this how about if I drop this see what happens and that way there's going to be a lot less fear because you're not consciously trying to move to a new place it was just getting more established where you are try that
5: thank you thank you so much yeah
3: I want to go back to one of the the morning's teachings, the, the one about the uh, house-based distress, which I think you call desire-based dist- distress. Um, that That's kind of really stuck with me all day, uh, the way that the the kind of self-based loss of the house-based distress kind of shows you the universality and then moves, moves you into this longing for freedom from this kind of suffering, which is in the renunciation-based distress um, that you talked about, and then moving into renunci- renunciation-based equanimity and renunciation-based happiness, I just like the flow of of, of those pieces and kind of a, a way of moving from the from the types of grief to um, to something more liberating. Well, yeah, it's
0: it's just going to go back and forth between having what you want and not having what you want. After all it gets very frustrating. There's there's no escape. It's kind of like that image of hell that the Buddha gives, where the beings are caught in this big iron box, and there's flames coming out from all sides. And every now and then a door opens in one of the walls. And so they all go running right to the to the door. And as soon as they get to the door, it slams shut. And then another door opens on another wall and they go running to that door and they have to go run through the fire. And as it gets to the door, the door slams shut. And that's basically, that's household-based distress. You're not getting what you want. And then finally, as they go running, 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 they go to this one door and it doesn't slam shut. And then they fall into another hell, the hell of excrement. (laughs) (laughs) You got what you want, but then you realize, oh my gosh, I've got to live live with this now. And so these are, there's a renunciation-based distress. Okay, there is a way out. I'm not there yet, but there is a way out. And that's what gives you hope. So even though it's classed as distress, it does have that sense of an opening, that there is a way out.
4: Hello, Tana John. Um, Although I've seen several benefits of continuous goodwill practice, I've noticed that when my mind is off the path, there is very often ill will prominent in the mix of mental fabrications of my mind that are going on when my mind is off the path. And um, in trying to make a resolve to be totally free from ill will, or at least free enough that I can settle down into right concentration, um, can you advise on certain strategy or tips or encouragement that would help make that resolution a success?
0: Okay, you've got to analyze the ill will and ask yourself again, what do I gain? What would I gain by seeing that person suffer? And what would the world gain by seeing that person suffer? Mm. And then if you can remind yourself, okay, when, when they suffer, they probably would change their ways and they'll continue, acting, you know, they'll continue to be the horrible people they've been so far. Mm.
4: Just, and... Um...
0: It would be better for them if they, the goodwill is basically, you know, can this person, hopefully this person will see the error of his or her ways and then begin to change. And that often, that, that would be better for the world, be better for you too.
4: Mm. Can I perform that kind of analysis uh, on a regular basis or should I wait for more when it comes up naturally to see it there and then perform that analysis or both? I,
0: I would get some practice with it first so that it comes more easily.
4: Okay. So regularly, maybe at the beginning of meditation.
0: Yeah. Ask yourself, is there anyone out there that I really can't have honest goodwill for? And a couple of people, a couple of people will come up. Mm-hmm. And i, say, mm-hmm. I deal with them now and not wait until I'm, I'm actually face-to-face with them.
4: Okay. Get it before it happens.
6: Right, right.
4: Okay. Thank you. Okay.
2: Panajan, I have a question regarding the perceptive uh, no stealing. So, uh, at my job, there is this uh, subtle pressure to like work more, uh, you know, to work harder. But uh, I want to balance that with my spare time because you know I want to have time for meditating, for my family. So, does by not working harder or longer, does that uh, count as stealing from my company?
0: Oh, no, no, no. 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 <laughs> Do not think that thought.
3: <laughs> um, we listen regularly to both your uh, morning talks and evening talks. Occasionally, we'll miss the week that we were moving back to Canada from the state of Washington. uh, We missed a whole week, uh, and we just heard it recently, um, and there was one you did on the 13th. You've been talking for many years um, about the duties associated with each of the Four Noble Truths, so to comprehend suffering, to uh, realize its cause, to um, abandon um, craving, and then to develop the path. But on the 13th, it struck us that you, you really said something I had never heard you say before. And it, it really really struck us as extremely interesting and extremely useful, mainly that you could bring that understanding as a kind of decision matrix or as a kind of um, framework to actually making decisions. I think your words were something if, if you're faced with a situation, you need to decide which you need to apply. Do you need to comprehend something in this moment? Do you need to realize something? Do you need to abandon something? Or there is a particular piece of the path that really calls to be developed in response to this situation. And I wonder, it, it just struck us as kind of amazing. And I'm just, because i would never seen it in that. I've seen it more generally, you know, oh, there's this thing. But not as a specific sort of thing. And I wonder if you could just elaborate further because I think particularly dealing with how to react to certain kind of changes, um, it might be a very useful framework. And I wonder if you just elaborate. Okay, Um,
0: wow. I mean, that's what the Four Noble Truths are, is just basically kind of a way of dividing up the, the pie of your experience so that you can decide, what is the appropriate action? What am I dealing with? What is the appropriate action to apply here? And when you can recognize, because all too often that to say there's suffering, we're trying to get rid of the suffering. Well, hey, wait a minute, that's that's the wrong thing. That's the wrong duty. That's something you've got to comprehend. You've got to find, okay, what's causing the suffering, and then you can abandon that. There's a story that was, um, they tell about there was a meditation monk in Bangkok. His name was Chokun-na. And he was doing walking meditation in front of his hut one evening. And this young monk came up to him and said, "I've been hounded by these thoughts of worries all day long. I don't know what to do." And Joachim looked at him and said, "Well, you're doing the wrong duty." And he turned and went into his hut, shut the door. <laughs> <laughs> and fortunately, the young monk had been been studying the duties of the four noble truths, and oh, I've been I've been developing something that I should be, you know, trying to comprehend,
3: mm-hmm.
0: or I've been trying to abandon it when I should. When I, when, I, when I should, should have to come comprehend it first. And so he, he came to a census and was able to deal with the problem. So that's basically what 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 the four noble truths are there for is that they're trying to divide up your experience into categories that can then help you decide what do I need to do here.
3: Mm-hmm. It just somehow stuck, you know, or went deeper into the brain and there was a little aha moment. And I thought, wow, that's really impressive. And, and we started to use it that way. And I think it's it's very fruitful. Good. Um,
7: I just want to definitely thank you for this talk i've been listening to your morning and evening um, messages regularly i listen to it regularly and i'm just so grateful to see you here um, this evening it's evening here where i am anyway i comprehend everything i read and i listen to you i listen to other teachers and i've been practicing i'm very diligent in practice it works yeah i see it but there is um it's a very lonely path kind of a melancholy i i i can talk to other people about it but i'm like yeah i i hear it in the talks i hear i listen to you i listen to other teachers i don't feel like talking about it with other people um but I do, I'm very, it's a very lonely path. Am I doing something wrong?
4: Well,
0: you, you have to listen to the right, you know, and look for the right friends. You don't want to be talking about this kind of thing to everybody. You have to be very selective about who you can share your insights and to share your experiences with. Um, and the Buddha said, if you can find someone that you feel confident talking to, you know, we, you know treat that friend really with a lot of respect, if you can't find anybody, it's better to go alone,
7: mm-hmm.
0: sort, of, so it, sort, of, it, sort of, protect the protect the quality of your practice so that you're, you are know, not picking up influences from people who might lead you astray. Mm-hmm. So that's in, in that sense. It is it is kind of a lonely path, but after a while, you begin to find okay, I'm, I'm, I'm learning some really important things about myself that really do mean a lot to me, I and mean, that you know, it doesn't really it doesn't really involve other people. Yeah, you know, something that's something of value to, to me there that 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 you can maintain maintain. It's okay. This is something valuable to me, and it may not be the same as having a friend, but it, I do have something of value that I can hold on to inside.
7: Yeah, and like you say, happiness that's lasting, but um, it's kind of like sad happiness because it's you're very much alone. Do you know what I mean? Yeah.
0: yeah well, it, it gets better.
3: <laughs>
7: <laughs> yeah, um, but I feel after meditation, I feel lighter. I feel good, but I do feel alone. And uh, it's—I don't think it's depression uh, because I'm okay. I, I've, I, um, you know. But it is—it's a lonely feeling. Yeah.
0: Now if you can find if you can find a companion, you know, a good friend, yeah. it's good. And as i were to say it's better it's better to maintain that sense of I've got something valuable here that I have got to protect
7: mm-hmm. thank you uh, just uh, in the moment i'm i'm I've been suffering from depression um, i've been on medication, but uh, suddenly my anxiety has spiked way beyond the uh, the capacity of the medication to handle it and in turn, my stomach has been upset and then it's a kind of a vicious circle. The anxiety produces a stomach pain, which makes me more anxious. Um, before I, <laughs> before I <laughs> seek some more medical help, which I'm, it's, that's a complicated story. Perhaps you could, and by the way, thank you for doing this, this day of Dhamma.
0: Okay, I would advise trying to focus on some part of the body that's not your stomach and try to breathe in a way that feels comforting there and the other part of the body. Okay. And then, then think of that good breath energy spreading down or spreading up into the stomach. But maintaining your center and maintaining the center of your focus, not at the stomach, but at the part of the body that you can make comfortable and you can't keep calm.
7: Okay. That's great. Thank you very much.
1: Right. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Ajahn. This has been delightful. It's wonderful to hear from you. Um, my question is uh, is about stream entry, um, specifically how um, to approach the concept of stream entry as a layperson in 2020. Um, and I'm, I suppose I'm wondering how we ought to um, sort of conceive of the concept in general and how we ought to think about it as we go about our lives and go about our own practices. Um, I'm aware that there are a lot of instances of lay stream enters in the suttas, um, but now sort of in the present day, I'm wondering if it's something uh, we should look at as, um, as sort of a goal we're working toward, um, or if as a lay person that might be sort of setting our sights too high or getting too goal oriented in a sense and, and setting ourselves up for disappointment perhaps. Um, I'm just wondering what you'd have to say about that.
0: Okay, as, as with any goal, you want to have it in the back of your mind that this this would be a good thing, but then how you get to that good thing, you have to focus on the path. And focusing on the path, you you know it's basically the path of following the precepts, developing your concentration, gaining some discernment into areas where you're you're adding unnecessary stress to your concentration, you're adding unnecessary stress to whatever you're doing. And if you can see you're doing it, you're doing that, you drop that action. And as you focus on each step of the path you find that the path does take you there without you having to think about, okay, how many how many more days is it gonna be till I get stream entry? I mean, it is possible. I, I'm convinced that my teacher had some lay students who were stream editors. But I don't think they were sitting around thinking, well, when, when am I gonna get the stream editor? They just said, let's just focus on the path as I'm doing it and put a lot of care into it. I don't know if you've seen the, the, um, the book on stream entry called Into the Stream.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah i have spotted yeah but it's again the, the
0: attitude you mm-hmm. should have is in the back of the mind it would be a good thing I mean, how do i get there well, i follow this path and just pay careful attention to the path it's like you know, it's like driving to a mountain on the horizon if you sit there looking at the mountain all the time you drive off the road
1: <laughs> okay thank you thank yeah. you very much
0: this road leads to the mountain okay i'm going to follow this road that's how you get there thank you venerable
8: Hi, Ajahn. Uh, I'm from Sri Lanka. I'm one of the medical consultants who's uh, fighting COVID epidemic over here. And uh, I would like to thank you first uh, because uh, being in a Theravada country, uh, I have got so much valuable knowledge and insight from your teaching. Uh, I want to ask you a few questions about my practice and comprehension of the pain. the most uh, intense concentration and uh, uh, successful meditation sessions in my breath meditation comes through uh, focusing on a pain one I have on my chest, which is a muscular pain. And when I get uh, very much concentrated, I pay my attention to that uh, pain and uh, my attention becomes one stream on the pain, and then I can see pain comes and goes uh, with time, and then uh, I peel off the lang- language uh, link with the pain, and you know the labels I use in the language uh, to the pain, and I go in and come back, remembering what I have peeled off, and going back again, and uh, as I peel off. Uh, perceptions as well uh, as fabrications, my mind gets very much concentrated. Uh, my question is if I look on the uh, Buddha's uh, path and he has told us uh, uh, some jhanic uh, kind of landmarks, the concentration I get uh, surpasses the jhanic pleasure because uh, I am concentrating on the pain. Is it the correct thing to do, number one? Uh,
0: Yeah, if you you find one that you get the mind into concentration and two that it's it's easy to see the the events going on in your mind, that would kind of write right right concentration.
8: Okay. Um, Number two, I find it uh, difficult to um, get the causes for rapture because um, in my concentration I don't get that much of rapture uh, i I find it difficult to tap into the poses, uh and you know tap into the uh, lines where which I can get into the rapture and uh, pleasure because I have heard you telling uh, that uh, if you have meditation without rapture and pleasure it is like a machine without oil or lubrication so so but my my best concentration comes to comprehend, I mean, when I in, uh, make my intention towards the pain.
0: Okay, you might want to back up sometime and focus on parts of the body, say on your feet and your hands, and try to get the breath energy really comfortable in the feet, really comfortable in the hands. Really. Relax the muscles in the hands. Think of every finger joint, every part of the palm, um, the hand, and just stay there with those sensations. And there should be a sense of fullness that comes with that. And just allow that to be there for the, for a while and then the rest of that. And that should give you some, some nourishment on your concentration. You're not constantly just fighting with the pain.
8: Okay, thank you. Sir.
0: My question
9: is about Majima uh, Nikaya 14. Uh, there it's said that uh, uh, first of all, uh, when you talk about uh, Meditation. Uh, I uh, I see uh, your your teachings uh, like uh, uh, you say It's a pleasure of form of form, and uh, that's why it's uh, you, you can hurt anyone with this sort of pleasure. Uh, but in Majimaniya fourteen, there is classified as uh, sensations. The kind of pleasure. So, uh, uh, wh- Why is that that difference? And uh, am I understanding anything incorrectly? No, I would,
0: <coughs> I would say that the word "form" has <coughs> several meanings in Pali. and sometimes it would be <coughs> like the form of some of a beautiful person, mm-hmm. which would which would actually be a sense a sensual pleasure. Seeing a beautiful, seeing a beautiful object, but then there's also the form of your body, as you feel it from the inside. And it's two different meanings of the same word. So when we're talking about the pleasure form that comes in the concentration, it's that second meaning that I'm referring to. Whereas in Module 14, they're talking you know, about visual, a visual object.
9: Uh, all right, all right. And so, Marcus was correct, the
0: <laughs> and, you know, uh, through your talent.
9: yeah I, I will tell him i think he is in in the meeting but i will tell him after and uh the other thing is that we miss you here in brazil you you should come as soon as possible <laughs> we really miss <laughs> you <laughs>
6: I want to start by just thanking you for all that you do, Venerable Ajahn. The, uh, those of us uh, in Vancouver, we have a little meditation group that we we meet Zoom, again, uh, weekly, and uh, we'll often take your translations and compare them with Bhikkhu Bodhis or someone else to try and get a grasp of the English understanding because we're we're, we're operating with sort of the Western English language, which is um, work art, the you know Protestant work ethic, work ethic, kind of thing, which is, I guess, part of my my question. Oh, and by the way, thank you for the YouTube's and all those audios. I mean, I can't imagine being without it now. Uh, can you maybe just frame um, this this position? Some of us from the I hate to say white middle class Protestant background in, in the West, handicap or blind spot that we have around um, actually getting to see the, the right view. Uh, you mentioned the house builders and, and versus and I, I'm thinking of wandering recluse, you know, you know um, scene that all is empty versus, fill me up, <laughs> give me more. I need more, I, I want to consume. So I just I, I struggle sometimes with the blind spots. And then it'll hit me that oh yeah, I've been trying too hard, or you know, those kind of things. Can you give a little advice to those of us that have been doing this a little while and still are not all wet, totally clear on the right view all the way through to the end of the
0: OK, well, this is something that everybody has to work for. It's not the case that Westerners have, have blind spots, and Asian people don't have blind spots. They, different people from different backgrounds will have different blind spots. That's how it, that's how it works for everybody. And so the way you deal with a blind spot is, every day ask yourself, "Is it something I really believe 100%, what would, what, to what extent would the opposite of that be true? Just learn how to entertain the thought. Something I'm, I'm absolutely convinced this has to be true. What to what extent would the opposite be true? Learn how to entertain, you know, call some of your assumptions into question. And in some cases, you say, okay, that, you know, I can't think of any way in which that would actually be true. But if you can find some areas where you begin to realize, okay, maybe I'm I'm a little bit too one-sided in my views of things, that might help.
6: Do you have a reference to, uh, sometimes I, I come across one of yours or someone else's little list of good questions, mm-hmm. and I sometimes find myself kind of lost for a good question. Any good okay, source well, that you recommend? Well, uh, John, Lee
0: has, to... uh, John Lee has a good question, for Any insight that comes up in your meditation is just that one that I gave you right now. It a, to what extent would the opposite be true? And then Leon has a good question. it like, once you get an insight, okay, what happens to the mind in the next moment? Let's see what it does.
10: Hello, Ajahn. Can you hear me? I
6: can
0: hear you, can't see. I can hear you.
10: Yeah, sorry, my video is not working. Uh, I actually got a question regarding name and form uh, in five aggregates uh, Buddha talks about uh, name and form and then in dependent origination there's uh, name and form from uh, what I kind of perceive is that these are all uh, mind objectives objects and fabrications so uh, is there a uh, Kind of a difference because, like, uh, when you get uh, take dependent origination, so it's uh, some sankalpa kind, of, uh, kind of that is the root that will produce name and form. And uh, when you say, like, uh, there's uh, eye object and eye conscious will create a form, and uh, is it kind of different from what Buddha talks in uh, five aggregates? Um, when you compare that with uh, a name and form independent origination,
0: okay, you have to remember that in the independent origination, he already has sankara and vijnana, in other words, fabrication and consciousness, as two separate categories already. Yeah. So the name and form in as one of the categories there. He does not include sankara, and he does not include consciousness. Among, among the types of name however right. you look at some of the things he does have that he does include that are new there you have intention which is basically fabrication you have yeah. intention which is fabrication you have contact which is the contact between the different things going on in the mind so what he's getting down to is the fact that you have consciousness on one side and you've got the other four aggregates on the other right. and there's that one version of dependent core rising where the two each each side is, acts as a condition for the other. Okay. So there's a way that you can sort of put the two the two two explanations together and get pretty much the same sense out of them. I mean, the important thing is that you're however you define up the pie. The important thing is that you realize that okay, these activities that are going on in the mind around which I I, I you know, tend to get attached to and there's other things, I have to learn how to see them as independent independent yeah. you know, events in the mind. Regardless of how you do it. Okay.
10: Right. Thank you very much.
5: Again, everybody can unmute themselves and just go ahead and say thank you and goodbye to Ajahn.